If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, co-host of the show. So happy to have you here. Listen, our guest today, let me just stop and ask how many of you have seen or heard the TED Talks? Of course, all of you have, right? Today, our guest is one of the 10 most popular TED Talks of all time with over 43 million views. That's right. Talking about Dr. Robert Bob Waldinger, Three Wing Two. Dr. Robert Waldinger is professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital, and co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation. He has overseen the longest scientific study of happiness ever conducted. This is a 70-plus-year study on happiness that Harvard has done. And Dr. Bob Waldinger is the one who landed the plane on this. And he has a brand-new book talking all about it. It's called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. So he's got the results with him today. Some really, really cool stuff. I know you're going to love it. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. Glad you're here, folks. Without any further ado, here's the host of our show, Ian Crump. Folks, I am so excited today because we have my new friend, Dr. Bob Waldinger, Enneagram 3 with a two-wing, we think, and co-author of the new book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness, Create a More Meaningful and Satisfying Life. Bob, welcome to Typology. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Okay. So I just mentioned to you before we hit record, I I have known about this study for quite some time. I have referenced this study multiple times on different shows. And so when I learned that I was going to be speaking with you today, I just became so excited. I have so many questions. And I want to start, because we're sort of an Enneagram-based podcast You don't know a ton about the podcast. You took a test. I think it was probably mine. It it pegged you as an Enneagram 3, but you don't really know what that means, do you? That's right. I don't know. Uh, All right. Let's just jump in and see what happens, okay? So let me describe the three for you and see if it it resonates, okay? Because as you know, no test is 100% reliable. So let's see if it got it correctly. The three is called the performer. Sometimes they're called the achiever. Threes grow up seeing the world as a place where people are only valued for what they do and for what they accomplish rather than for who they are inside. Now, I want you to think of yourself as a 23-year-old man, not you know because you've evolved since then, Right. But that unconscious sort of belief or story continues to run, at least in the background, 
of the Enneagram 3. So they have an unconscious need to succeed, to appear successful, and really to avoid failure at all costs. So tell me, does that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's obviously it's not the totality of me, but it's absolutely true of me. I mean, Mm. you don't, you know, I'm a Harvard professor. I'm a Zen master. I'm a psychoanalyst. I mean, these are a lot of kind of brass rings that I've been grabbing, you know, over and over again. So Mm -hmm. certainly that my life, you know, if you look at my, the bare bones of my life, you would say, yeah, this guy's kind of into achievement. Interesting. Well, I'm going to jump into talking about your book, but I'm probably going to tap the ball on the Enneagram and the Enneagram 3 as we go along, just to pepper our conversation with, you know, just interesting points about this personality system. So if they say I have a two wing, Mm. what does that mean? What does that add to it? Sure. So the Enneagram comes with this unusual nine-pointed geometric figure around which all of the different personality types are plotted, okay? So as a three, on either side of you, adjacent to that number are two others, right? There is a two and there is a four. Mm -hmm. Now, those are called the wings. The two is called the helper and the four is called the individualist. Now, you have both wings, but one is dominant. Mm -hmm. And if the test is accurate, you have a helper wing, which means that there's a part of you that really wants to be liked. And you have a very, in your healthiest expression, a very altruistic, caring component to your personality. And so what the wing does is it seasons your dominant type with some of its characteristic features, and you can draw resources from it, like the ones I've just mentioned. And it adds another layer of distinction and understanding of your dominant type. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm a physician. (laughs) I teach Zen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Sounds like the Enneagram may have something that might be, might be useful to you. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right. So I love this new book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. So I want to know, just in general, about your work at the, the center and about the study that you write about in the new book. So you want to know about the study first? Should I explain what it is? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So the study is the longest study of the same people going through their entire adult lives, the longest study that's ever been done. We're in our 85th year. Wow. Um, Started with one generation and moved on to the second generation. And some of the first generation are still alive. They're in their late 90s or early 100s. They started as two studies in 1938, One was a study of very privileged young men, Harvard undergrads, 19 years old. And one was a study of very underprivileged young men from Boston's poorest and most troubled families, families Mm -hmm. known to social service agencies for big social problems. But both studies were studies of what makes some young people thrive as they grow up. And so instead of, you know, a lot of the research has been about what goes wrong in human life, because that way, if we find that out, we can help. This was a study of what allows people to thrive, even people like the inner city group who were born with so many strikes against them. And so 
that's what we've studied for 85 years, bringing in wives and then children. So now we have gender balance and we've been going at it for more than eight decades. Mm. And the study's focus is trying to determine what is it that makes for a meaningful, satisfying, and happy life. Am I correct? Correct. Okay. So the word happiness, you know, is one of those words that if I were to ask five people to define that term, I'd get five very different answers. It's a very yeah. kind of squishy, you know, it's an opinion word, right? This is my opinion about what happiness is. So, yeah. so what is your understanding of happiness? And also, what do you think some of the common misconceptions are about happiness? Yeah. Well, I just want to say one of my research teachers once said something that I find very helpful. He said, without data, I'm just another guy with a bunch of opinions. <laughs> so what what I will tell you is what research shows about happiness, which is that, yes, it can be defined in all sorts of ways. But when you ask people, it tends to fall into two big buckets, that one is the bucket called hedonistic well-being. It comes from hedonism. Mm -hmm. And it's, am I having fun now? So like, I'm enjoying this conversation with you two. I'm having fun now in an hour, something annoying may happen, and then I won't be happy, right? That's hedonistic well-being, goes up and down all day long. Then there's eudaimonic well-being, and that's that sense that life is meaningful, that my life is worthwhile. Mm. And what we think is that everybody wants some of both, some moment-to-moment -moment fun and some long-term sense of mission and purpose but that some of us prioritize one of those more than others, more than the other. And so, so that's the way I think about well-being based on a lot of research on many thousands of people. So what I'm hearing you say is, if I'm not incorrect, both hedonism or let's say a hedonistic and a, and a eudonistic view that most have some mixture of the two, but would you say that people who lean more toward the eudonistic have a, more, a happier, more satisfying life? No, I wouldn't. I mean, because okay. happiness is in the eye of the beholder, right? Okay. Yep. If if you say you're happy, you know, I have to believe you, right? <laughs> now, you might show me in other ways that you don't look very happy, but hmm. but really happiness is a self-reported subjective experience. Mm -hmm. So- it's impossible to say that the party animal is less happy than the person who slogs away on an 85-year longitudinal study that involves a lot of deferred gratification, right? I don't know, you know? I tend to be more on the side of eudaimonic well-being, more on the mm -hmm. side of kind of, is my life meaningful? That's what seems to mean the most to me, that, that I care about the most, I have friends who are so much better at moment-to-moment -moment pleasure than I am. I don't think one of us is happier. We're just different. We're built differently. Yes. I guess part of my cynicism, cultural cynicism, has been there's so much – I hear this phrase a lot, best life, living my best life ever, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, you know, Part of me kind of goes, oh, God, there's that again. I know. Um, and I think for me personally – I would lean into the eudonistic, right? Like I'm a person who cares very deeply about the ultimate questions of life, 
Right? Yeah. Like, what does it all mean? What is the meaning of human suffering? And how do we look pain in the eye and make something better out of it? You know, these kinds of questions sort of haunt me. I'm not a guy who's like, I really want to go surf a wave in Portugal. I'm not against yeah. it. I'm yeah. not against it. I think it would be really cool, but it's not my number one jam. Right. But don't like you I, sometimes don't you sometimes envy the guy who really oh, just wants to do that? You can just do oh that. Yeah. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah. But, right. So you know, part of me is like I just have to confess that on the big five, I score pretty high on neuroticism. So I think yeah, this is okay. part of part of the deal. But yes, I definitely envy people who have that joie de vivre isn't the right word, but this uh, kind of yeah, they derive pleasure in the moment from so many things. But I also find at times a person who leans too far in that direction can err on the side of, dare I say, being vapid at times, right? Or just yeah, kind of yeah. also being uninteresting because that's all they have. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly, exactly. But for me, you know, especially when, you know, when you study thousands of lives and you watch them right. over time, you realize how many different pathways there are, how many sure. different ways there are to go through life, right? Yeah. And so I have come to think of it more as a road not taken for me. More than better or worse, honestly. I mean, this is not, you know, it's not that I'm noble for being non judgmental. It's just that I've seen so many people live different yes. kinds of lives right. that I say, wow, that would be a different way to do it. Mm. And I'm doing it this way, but boy, I know it's not the only way that makes some people happy. And I agree wholeheartedly. I don't tend to be a binary thinker. I can see that, you know, eh, not my jam, but. I get it, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, and I think also that people's definition of happiness must change and evolve throughout the course oh, of yeah. their lives. I think that's right. I think that's you know? right. Certainly, what they prioritize changes. So, one of the things we find is that people actually get happier as we get older, mm-hmm. which seems counterintuitive, right? It looks like getting older is depressing and sad and loss and all that, right? But it turns out that as a species, you know, when you look at hundreds of thousands of people, they get happier, their mood gets better gradually as they get older. So not everybody, but as a population, we do. And a lot of the science says that the reason we do that is we shift our priorities. That as we get older, the fact of death becomes more real Like it's no longer just something that's going to happen to somebody else or happen such a long way off that it doesn't matter. That as we get into our 40s and 50s and 60s, it's like, oh my gosh, this is really going to happen to me. And therefore, rather than making me more depressed, it makes me prioritize what I care about the most. Mm -hmm. And so what they find, and they document this, they literally find that people... Stop spending time with those people who they feel obliged to spend time with, but they haven't enjoyed in years, or they stop going to those meetings that they really don't like anymore. They give up, they shed some shoulds, they stop mm. doing the shoulds, and that that mm. makes us happier. Wow. So, what are the common misconceptions people have about happiness? Well, probably the most common is that you can be happy all the time if you just do all the right stuff. Right. That if I just, you know, if I do the right fasts and I do the right yoga and I buy the right car and I serve the right pasta to my family, I mean, no matter, you know, there are all these messages we get about what we're supposed to do. And if you do that, you'll have the happy life. That is just not the truth of anybody's life. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's worth calling out that myth 
because nobody has a life that's happy all the time. You will never get there. And that's not depressing. It's just how it is. And in fact, one argument we make in the book, telling all these life stories, is that it's the challenges that actually make life feel good over time. It's facing and meeting challenges that's part of what a good life is about. I love so that. So that's one, that's one myth. Okay. Great. Yeah. Keep going. Give me a couple more. Okay. Well, there's the myth, the standard myth about what will make us happy. So, you know, we're often told that being rich, being famous, winning the Nobel Prize will make us happy. And they don't make us less happy either. They're just different from happy or not happy. So we had people in our study who were rich and famous and who, if didn't, if they didn't win the Nobel Prize, they won the equivalent. I mean, John F. Kennedy was president of the United States and he was in our study. And what we find is that those people are not happier than the people who were not well off. That once you have your material needs met, you know, if you have a modest income, the research shows that then you can make a gazillion more dollars and that doesn't substantially increase your happiness. So, and what we find is that actually famous people often are less happy because they lose some things. They lose the ability to be anonymous walking on the street. Their lives are more constrained by their fame. Mm. And the achievement too is something that doesn't make people, the badges of achievement, like, you know, the prizes, doing meaningful things and achieving things that can make people quite happy. That can feel good and meaningful, but, you know, actually winning that award, that usually feels good for just a minute or two. And then you're on to the next thing. And you said in your TED talk that I don't know what swath this was of like younger people, but over half or half of their idealized goal was to be famous because they perceive yeah. that as bringing happiness. Yeah. And wow. you know, and if you look on social media, you know, there are these people who are famous for being famous and that looks like, wow, that's what I want. Right. Mm-hmm. I want to mm-hmm. be an influencer, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of that in our culture now. One quick question back to what you said a minute ago, you talked about happiness comes from facing challenges and overcoming those challenges, I guess, or facing inevitable challenges. Why does that help to bring happiness? Is there a result of facing those challenges that feeds that? So one of the things we know is that, so like they've studied stress and they find that stressors or challenges that we can meet Mm -hmm. actually turn out to make us stronger, but they also make us happy. That there's something about, you know, I have these resources and I can do this thing right? I can master this thing. There's something very satisfying for most of us about mastering something. And and sometimes things that we didn't think we could do, and we surprise ourselves, which is different from being overwhelmed. So any of us could be completely overwhelmed and overrun by hardship, by challenge. That doesn't make us happy at all, obviously. But that if you, the idea is if your resources match the challenge that's coming your way, that can turn out to be a satisfying experience. Does that make sense? Yeah. So everybody, we're talking to Dr. Bob Waldinger, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness, Create a More Meaningful and Satisfying Life. He is the co-author of this book, and we are just having this amazing conversation. It's so timely because of the pandemic. I've been thinking about how the pandemic 
affected our relationships and therefore our happiness. I mean, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. The pandemic made everything worse, but it didn't start anything new. So if we Mm. think about social isolation, if we think about loneliness, they've been increasing for decades, not Mm. just in our society, not just in Western industrial societies, but all over the world. Social isolation is increasing. Loneliness is increasing. Levels of depression and anxiety have been on the rise. Levels of substance abuse, addictions of various kinds. But COVID accelerated it all through the lockdown, through the fear, the, you know, so much that was unknown and frightening about COVID before we understood even what it was or how it was spread. So really what that says, I think, is not that COVID brought us new problems, but that COVID just speeded everything up. And that means, I think, that people have to turn their energies toward reestablishing relationships, right? And based on the, your research, that's that far more than ever before, right? Yeah. Uh, if, in fact, they want to have a satisfying and meaningful life. So I want to just ask you, as we move toward the end of our time together, the top three surprising facts from the study that you were just like, what? Yeah. Well, the most surprising fact was that the people who stay happiest, healthiest, and live the longest, have the warmest connections with other people. And the surprise wasn't that we'd be happier because if you have better relationships, yeah, you'll be happier. The surprise is how could a relationship get into our bodies and make it less likely that we'll get coronary artery disease or type Mm. 2 diabetes? How could that be a thing even? And yet many other studies have found the same thing. So we have a lot of confidence in it as a robust finding. And we've been spending the last 10 years in our lab trying to understand how exactly that works. What is the mechanism by which relationships shape our physiology Mm. and our health? So that's the biggest surprise. Another, it's not a surprise, but it's a reminder that's like, really? It's that taking care of your health matters so much that the people who didn't take care of their health lived on average maybe a decade less long than the people who took care of their health. So we're talking about exercise, eating well, not abusing alcohol or drugs, not smoking, that all those things that, you know, our grandmothers told us, you know, about turn out to matter hugely when we study thousands of people. And that's, that's just worth naming, even though it's not a surprise. Right. Yeah. And then is there a third is there a third one? Let me think. They they always come in threes, right? Probably it's oh, I know. It's a sense that religion and spirituality didn't make people happier and it didn't make people less happy. So we ask people, are you religious? Do you have a spiritual practice? And the people who had them said that they were a great comfort often, particularly in hard times but that those people weren't any happier than the people who said, no, I don't believe in any of that stuff. Interesting. That is really interesting. Now, you also jump into talking about the influence of childhood on adult relationships. And can just share a little bit about what or how our childhood impacts adult relationships? Well, it does in so many ways. Like we find that there are these long 
connections that reach across six, seven decades. So that what happened in your childhood, the warmth of your relationships with your parents predicts how warm your relationship is going to be with your partner in your 80s. Which is kind of astonishing because in my kind of research, it's very difficult to find a connection across 60 years because, you know, so many things happen. So many other things could make a difference, could move the needle. But to find that connection from the time you were a kid to the time you're in your 80s is a big deal. So what we find is that childhood either sets us up to expect that the world is basically safe, that people are basically decent and can be trusted to help when I need help, and they can be trusted to care about me, or the opposite. Mm. And one of the reasons why childhood trauma is so terrible is not just because of the actions that happen during the trauma, but also because they burn into our psyches the expectation that people can't be trusted, that Mm. people who I expect to help me might just as easily hurt me. And that's a terrible legacy to carry into adult life. That can be corrected by having Hmm. better restorative healing relationships in adulthood. It can definitely be corrected. And we've seen it happen. We tell stories in our book about that. But those are really important legacies to carry with you. So it's never too late. I'm 62. By the way, a product of a a really troubled home. You say that it's never too late to forge or strengthen uh, relationships? I just, I want you to tell and just, I know it's a ridiculously big question, but how do we do it? Well, there are some how-tos, really. One is we talk about this thing we call social fitness. And we coined that phrase just to point out that it's analogous to physical fitness, that taking care of our social world is something we can't just leave to chance and we can't be passive about it. You don't go to the gym and work out today and come home and say, good, I'm done. I don't ever have to do that again. And what we find is that relationships, perfectly good relationships are like muscles. They will atrophy if we don't take care of them, if we don't use them. Mm. And so one of the things we can do is take small actions regularly every day or at least every week to reach out, to connect with somebody. Like people could finish listening to this podcast and think, who do I miss? Who would I like to be sure I'm connected with? Take out your phone and send them a text or an email or call them and say, hi, I just wanted to connect with you. And you'll be amazed at how much positive stuff you get back. Not every time, but way more often than not. So you can be active. And I've started doing that more in my own life because otherwise I was working all the time and my friendships were kind of languishing. So that's to take care of the relationships you have. There's also a way to build new relationships. If you're somebody who doesn't have much in the social fitness department, that you can do things in the world alongside other people, do things you care about, do things you love to do. So volunteer or join a sports league or go to a religious organization or, you know, fight against climate change, do something you care about. And if you do it alongside other people and you see them over and over again, it's an easy conversation starter because you have something in common with them. And if you Mm. see the same people, research finds that that frequent informal contact ends up starting conversations that can then deepen and in some cases 
become friendships. And mm. so that's one thing. Another thing that people can do if you don't feel like you have enough connections is find a way to be of service. So if you volunteer at a food pantry or, you know, bring meals to people who are shut-ins or, you know, read to children, there are programs where older adults read to preschoolers and everybody is just completely thrilled. The preschoolers love being read to and the older adults really love doing it. So there are ways that that we can be of service that turn out to build connections, even when we feel lonely and we feel like nobody really wants me around. You know, I was just thinking, I, my audience knows this, but it's a, such a big part of my life. I'm, I've in recovery from a substance, dis, substance use disorder, and I am part of a 12-step community. I go to meetings probably four days a week, yeah. partly because I love them. I mean, I just, I, yeah. I, just yeah, think yeah. I think there's such repositories of wisdom. It's like sitting in a, yeah. like in a wisdom circle every, every yeah. couple of days. And I was watching or reading Johan Hari's work, and he talks about how the opposite of addiction is not abstinence, it's connection. And that mm. that is the healing component in the life. So, and it is to be purposeful, right? So they did a study, I think it was in Denmark, that of people suffering from substance use disorder or generalized anxiety disorder or de major depressive. And rather than simply giving them a, course of treatment with medications, they had them do things like create a community garden and work in it, you know, almost every day with other people who had the same problems. And what they discovered is that it was as effective or in many, many instances, more effective for helping these people experience healing. And yeah. of course, this lines up completely with your findings, right? Absolutely. Because it gives people a sense of purpose. There are people they want to show up for, you know, mm -hmm. we're going to, we're going to dig this part of the garden today. Right. And so I got to go. And so actually I don't want to drink a lot because tonight, because I want to get there for my people, mm. you know, there are all mm. these ways in which showing up for others can be such an incentive to take care of yourself. And I love that. I mean, it makes total sense. I love that idea that the opposite of addiction is connection. I just, mm -hmm. that's just amazing. And I think one of the things that the 12 step programs do so brilliantly is that they replace the isolation of addiction with a community, mm -hmm. with a tribe, mm -hmm. you know? So you mm -hmm. go back, I assume, partly because some of the people are familiar to you and you love to be with them in the meetings, right? Oh, I have such a love and an affection for what we call, I call my litter mates. Um, yeah, yeah. They, you know, we show up. And of course, it's from a cross section of life, from the Ivy League educated to somebody who may have just gotten out of a living inside a dumpster or their car, yep. right? And yep. you have, and they're helping each other, right? I mean, yeah. The Yale graduate is meeting with the guy who just got out of the dumpster in a diner having coffee. It's the yep. craziest thing. And yeah. gosh, there is so much communal wisdom in there about right. finding a purposeful life. Yeah. And what you're talking about is this, the reality of 
how much of our humanity is shared, right? That we mm. notice and we talk about all the differences and, and Lord knows in our culture now, there's all this emphasis on differences and tribalism. And yet when you get to it, that the human experience is so much more common to all of us, to the guy living in the dumpster and the Yale graduate, it's so much more common than the differences that we make so much of to, yes. you know, to inflame each other and to garner votes and to garner attention. Yes. And, you know, sometimes, you know, some people will say you, when you're in a very different, something terrible has happened to you. And a person will say, well, you know, I, I don't know exactly how you, and as, as if that's uh, honoring somebody's pain. And I get the sentiment, but I'm like, that's not great news. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I don't want to. Th- I really don't want to hear that right. my pain is so unique that you can't <laughs> yeah. understand it. And in fact, what I want to know is that within a square mile of where I'm standing, that there are several people who know exactly how I feel about my failing marriage or my child who's having this struggle or about my lost job. You know, because yeah. I want to sense that we are in some measure in solidarity in this life and in our common experience. So, Well, actually, wow. one, of, one of my psychiatry teachers, when I was a newbie in psychiatry, once said, by the time you're five years old, you have felt every emotion you're ever going to feel. Wow. So, really? Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Amazing. Wow. I have one, one question. Can I ask one question, yeah. Ian, before? Yeah. Well, I just wanted to, because I know you practice meditation and uh, I just wanted to ask the question around some of your study, if you've learned that being present is a part of the makeup of having a happy life. You know, it's not my study that shows this, but some of the psychological studies of what they call flow, mm-hmm. you know, those states of being just really absorbed mm-hmm. in what you're doing. And that's, a, that's being really present. That state of flow is very satisfying. Mm-hmm. emotionally. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, for me, it can be sometimes in meditation. I mean, sometimes my mind is a racing mess, right? Sure. But sometimes there is that state of just being fully present, mm-hmm. but it could be skiing down a ski slope, right? Mm-hmm. It could be anything, right? And so my, I think what some people find who are particularly happy is they find a place where they can get into that state of flow sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, for mm-hmm. my wife, it's playing the piano. Mm-hmm. You know, she doesn't meditate at all. She's not into it. But mm-hmm. boy, playing the piano transports her. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, Bob, author of The Good Life Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness, Create a More Meaningful and Satisfying Life. Thank you so much for being on Typology. Man, I'm, I just know our folks are going to benefit so much from this research and the book. I'm going to encourage everybody to go out and get it. Bob, how can people learn more about you? Well, they can go to robertwaldinger.com. They can go to Insight Timer if they want to listen to some of my Dharma talks as a Zen teacher. Um, Oh, yeah, great. I have Insight Timer, so I will do that. Okay. And thegoodlifebook.com. That's the website for the book if you want to order it. Well, thank you so much for being on today. Typology listeners, please remember these words. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace, may you have healing, and may you have rest. Until next time.